Welcome back, listeners, to another Ag Watchers. We've got a special guest on here, joining Matt and myself, Andrew Whitelaw. We've got uh, Graham Lean uh, from the Western Districts. Uh, I'm going to give let uh, Graham introduce himself because I'm not quite sure what Graham does because he uh, he seems to have a lot of uh, bows and uh, he's, he's a vet and a business consultant and I'm going to let Graham introduce himself. Graham, thanks for coming along. Oh, thanks very much, Andrew and Matt. Uh, thanks for inviting me along. It's good to catch up with the Egg Watchers, um, enjoying your work. Uh, I guess to give the listeners a bit of background, I yeah, originally I, I did vet science and that was a lot of fun, enjoyed that. But uh, the calling of farm production and, and farm business became stronger and stronger and I uh, enjoyed livestock production uh, over a broader sense and how it fitted into farm management. And uh, I've been doing that for over 30 years, uh, loving every moment. I've have trans- oh, moved into finan- a lot of financial work over time, but the core is still livestock production and management and farm management. Uh, but certainly uh, I, I add to my bow uh, finance and um, risk management. So where, whereabouts are you based, Graham? Uh, Hamilton, Western Victoria. Yep. And I mainly work uh, in southern, southern Australia, mainly um, across the southern strip of um, south of the Divide, but uh, straight north occasionally and straight west to WA and South Australia occasionally. Do a bit in Tassie, or used oh, yeah. to, before COVID-19. <laughs> but uh, uh, got a lovely clientele in Tasmania and they're all very enjoyable to work with. And uh, I have been visiting there regularly until earlier this year when... COVID-19 took over events. So, Graeme, um, could, could, just give us a quick kind of, if you, if you had a atypical kind of client base, you know, what, who's, your, who's your kind of standard client in terms of, is it a lot of kind of, um, is, it, is it a family operation or do you go into that corporate kind of farm space as well? Or? Oh, mainly family, but I do deal with corporates, yes, and, and sizable corporates. Um, also do a fair bit off farm. So, I mean, like, I love the farm work, but, um, you know, corporates knock on the door and I end up doing a bit of work for companies involved in agriculture and, and, and government as well. So I've done a bit of different, I do a diff, bit of different stuff. But in terms of um, the farm, on-farm stuff, I do consulting. Um, yes, predominantly um, larger family businesses. And uh, it's a variation between prime lamb, wool, cropping, beef, cattle, and irrigation. So there's a there's a fair slather of different um, activities in the clientele. It's a good mix, and it? it's a mix, and it's a good um, uh, district like geographic distribution as well. Um, for those that don't know as well, you're pretty active on um, on social media uh, as well, Graham. So um, did you want to give a, a little plug before we get into it in earnest for your um, for your Twitter handle? Oh, why not? Why not? Uh, yes, I, I put up the odd post as AgriVet Business and uh, I found Twitter very good for um, information. And that's why I first got on Twitter to get information. And uh, it, I found it very efficient to, I'm always reading uh, science and analyses and reports. That's my hobby. I love it. And um, Twitter is a great uh, source of good information. But uh, of, of uh, a few years ago, a client said to me, you should tweet. And I said, I've been on Twitter for nearly 10 years and never tweeted myself. <laughs> so he said, no, you should do that. You should do that. And so I started and uh, haven't stopped since. <laughs> so, so, so Graham, we, we followed one another for quite 
quite a while on Twitter and I've always respected a lot of how you've got your own opinion mm -hmm. and, you're not, and you're not scared to say your opinion. One of the things that I found most interesting or not, it's not that interesting really, is I actually thought your Twitter handle was Ag Rivet. <laughs> like rivet as in, because <laughs> I, I didn't realize you were a vet. So, okay. so it was only after about two years of knowing you that I realized it was agri-vet, so not, not well, agri-rivet. I haven't come across that one before, but uh, maybe that's the Scottish thing, Andrew. <laughs> yeah. So, so one of the things that we wanted to talk about tonight was really pick your brain a little bit because, because you got that experience working across a business management on, on farm with, with a wide sector of different types of enterprise mixes was, I guess, the question, is it time to get rid of wool? That's probably pretty blunt, but, yeah, yeah. you know, we, we've seen, you know, the wool market go through pretty big highs in recent years. Uh, and then we've seen, you know, again, CV19, the, the dreaded C word. That's the worst C word we can use now is COVID. <laughs> and uh, we, we've seen that drop dramatically. And that's just another impact of, is, is there another nail in the coffin of wool? And even at the moment, you're from Hamilton. Yeah. And we've even lost the big, big wool bale. bales. Oh, tragedy. <laughs> Absolute tragedy. The big yeah, bales been white-handed. It's been white-handed, hasn't it? It's a good symbol. It's a good symbol for the wool industry, isn't it? Yes. Well, the funny thing is, I mean, we do a fair bit of farm benchmarking as well, budgets and things like that. But the farm benchmarking is always a good um, resource to go back to the fact, you know, fact check what you're talking about. And so, I mean, I'm, my advice is heavily dependent on the um, uh, published scientific literature, peer-reviewed literature, um, and also as much hard facts as we can find, because that's the best way you know, business to go forward and, and farming is just another business. As simple as that. It's great business to be in. It's got a great future, but uh, it's just another business. So if you look at what the drivers of profit over time, um, it hasn't been enterprise choice. Farmers and consultants generally spend a heck of a lot of time comparing, you know, different enterprises. Um, whereas, um, you know, the, drive, the big drivers of um, profit are really stock things like in you know, a livestock sense stocking rate and cropping yield and uh the management to do those execute those things properly where and i'm not and i'm not saying enterprise isn't important i'm just saying it doesn't come out of the wash when you examine the hard figures as a key profit driver it's certainly revel relevant to individual businesses and i think it's more about doing what you like you know doing what you do but do it well so um, that's the profit driver. So that includes enterprise in terms of does it fit my uh, the rest of my business? Does it integrate with the crop? Does it integrate integrate with the cattle? Things like that. Or how does it integrate with irrigation? Those are the key questions you ought to be asking about enterprise, because really, um, you know, over time, uh, they, enterprise choice hasn't been a profit driver. Uh, the other thing, of course, is your environment. So you know, trying to run uh, a profitable prime lamb enterprise in the Northern Mallee might be a bit of a challenge, whereas, um, or, or, so, or Western New South Wales, say, but uh, say south of Hamilton, where there's a long growing season or in Tassie, it's a hell of a lot easier. 
So from that perspective, though, Grumman, it's one of the things we've discussed uh, quite a few times over the years um, internally here with the team and with others. And um, in fact, Andrew was alluded to it too. We discussed this option today with a presentation I gave um, with regards to the, the the possibility we might see some restocking in the in the in the lamb and sheep space um, with the, with the good season we're, we're anticipating. Um, and the comment was made that. Um, you know, and I was talking in relation to prime lambs and restocking in yep. that field because it was more a meat, a meat kind of um, presentation. Uh, and the question was, well, you know, is it still going to be a chance that we're going to see some rebuild of the flock um, uh, because of, of where how the wool side of the business is heading? Is that going to, you know, it's, it's all doom and gloom and, and we've got an EMI below $10. We couldn't even, like Andrew said, we couldn't attract people to the wool industry in any great way when the EMI was above 20 bucks and now we're <laughs> below 10 bucks. How, how the hell are we going to get them in? You know what I mean? Um, what, what, what are you seeing on the ground with those kind of, you know, wool? Well, it's probably two, a two part question. Why do you think uh, we are seeing this move away from wool over time, even despite <clears throat> the good price and good returns of, of the last few years? And, um, and you know, what, what could be done to entice people back in? Oh, look, I think there's a couple of things there with wool. One is um, generally people, you know, the average farmer doesn't, to be quite honest, they probably don't do the whole uh, uh, financial analysis that one, someone like myself or others do. So, for example, um, bigger clients who do, they, they've sort of been going more towards wool in recent years, for example, because when you take it back to a DSC or per hectare basis, it's been performing very well. So, you know, there's no problem with wool uh, production over the last few years being highly profitable and competitive with um, alternative uses. But the thing is that so many farmers will just not go through it because, they, you know, they don't have the scale or they don't have the expertise to go through the whole um, analysis on per hectare or per DSC basis, which is the way you should do it because that's basically the bottom uh, input that they're, they're consuming um, and hence you've got to look at what they turn out. They look on a per head basis. And when you might have a, um, you know, productive prime lamb, a fecund prime lamb flock, you know, per DSC, that you might be up around close to two and a half DSC. Well, she's got to produce a fair bit more than your average merino, you're at 1.5 DSC or your average weather at one DSC. So you've got to uh, compare apples with apples. And when you do, wool has come out um, well for some for some time. And there's very profitable businesses, so wool growing businesses. So why is it then? So the second part of the question then is, and particularly I'm thinking of the younger farmers. I could probably count on one hand of all the, the farmers, say below you know 45 or so, that are interested in wool and and, and see a real future in wool for themselves. Um, they're few and far between. Um, if it's as profitable as the numbers show, and mm. and it's also quite a reliable. Um, you know, when you compare it to the volatilities you might see in cropping, for argument's sake, um, or even cattle, um, you know, potentially, um, from, from, a, from a, you know, volatility perspective, the returns on wool are pretty stable, really, we can consider those, those kind of different mixes. Why is it, is it just because it's considered, or people, people, certainly the younger generation, I think it's just too hard work to be mucking around with wool and sheep and, you know, is, is that part of the issue or...? There's a couple of things there. Thanks for reminding me. I, I, I didn't quite finish. Uh, I, I, sorry, I didn't quite answer the full part of your question before. I think the, there is something uh, to be 
I think one of the issues with wool in the wool industry isn't about money, it's about uh, management and that's mulesing. So I do think that for a lot of younger guys and for a number of older ones, that's become just too hard basket. They'd rather not deal with it. Cause I mean, um, you know, it, it's been a minefield of um, problems, mulesing, and it's a ticking time bomb still. Uh, I, I hasten to add the Australian Veterinary Association uh, recommendation for breach strike control is mulesing with pain relief in merinos. Um, the merino, you know, the sheep, uh, merinos need to um, move away from mulesing, but that will take some time. A recent analysis by Forbes Bryan uh, and his team from Adelaide Union, there's others who have done similar work, is, is 15 to 20 years. Uh, if you're going to maintain your other, the progress in your other traits. And that's, in, in, in that's terms fine. of, going back to that, sorry, just quickly, in terms of pain relief on mulesing, mm -hmm. that's now compulsory in Victoria? Compulsory in Victoria, As, as, yep. as of last week, is that right? Uh, as of 1st of July, it's compulsory. 1st of July. And that's not the case in any other state, is it? No. Okay. Australian, uh, the Australian Standard for Best Practice in Sheep is also to provide pain relief when mulesing. And CSRI work has demonstrated that the, you know, the gold standard behaviour of um, mules lambs with pain relief is, is significantly not different from those uh, lambs in the same trials who are not mules. So you can counter that pain, but that, um, this is not a consumer problem. I'm diverging here a second. It's not a consumer problem. It's, it's, it's an issue with processes, retailers being bombarded by animal activists in, in their offices by constantly. Um, if you ask someone in, this, in, in Melbourne or let alone overseas, what's mulesing, they'll look at you blankly. They've got no idea, <laughs> you know, really. But nevertheless, we, it's something that is a significant um, operation. And so uh, the pain relief is appropriate for that operation. But that's where I think for some people, they just think it's in the too hard basket. Um, mm. So. Uh, that's that's a, I think that's a significant issue for the industry there. In terms of labour, the labour, uh, you know, our, our, when you look at the farm benchmarking, merino operations are more labour efficient than prime lamb operations. There's a lot of work involved with drafting lambs, getting ready for sale. It's 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 it, it it's all busy then. But and uh, in terms of cropping, same thing per hectare. Labour efficiency per hectare of cropping is much the same as um, uh, livestock when you count all the contract labour in that both operations use and, and owner labour as well. Mm. Just just before we kind of finish, leave that musing discussion though, um, you mentioned there, and it's, I'm, I was quite surprised you said it's not a consumer-led thing, and I, I appreciate um, the the small minority of um, activists that are out there, you know, whatever their particular bent is, they can be pretty loud and seem like they're a big uh, component. But my understanding was that certainly um, from Europe, at least, um, the, the the move towards um, non mules was was driving it in that high, higher fashion. And is that not the case, or is it is it more that you're saying that you know the bulk of Australian wool goes to China and, and they don't really care too much either way? Is that is that where you're referring, or? Uh yeah, look, China, I guess that's true. China is is not that um, concerned about music and wouldn't know about it. But same thing in Europe, really, even the high end. You're talking about very few 
that, that it's a bit of a con job really to be honest because i don't i think if you if you go and ask people um when you're in europe you know what do you think of meals and what do you know they, they just don't know but i don't want to gloss over this from a point of view of saying that's a significant Mulesing is a serious operation to do on any, any animal, okay? So it's, it is the best outcome for the welfare of the sheep at the moment for merinos, but there's other alternatives that are being developed and are very effective. Um, hopefully they'll be um, get all their official trial work um, up and going soon, but there's also... Uh, people, if they really want to, can make uh, you know some nuisance size with very low breed sprinkle because there are some out there and and get to a non milting state very fast. But that that will still take a few years to do. But um, the fifteen to twenty year project, that's when you you're breeding within your own flock over time. So that that that's a that's certainly realistic. But you can shortcut it. But there's expenses and a lot of effort involved. And I think that's where some people just think it's easier just to run prime lamb operation because anyone who switched to a prime lamb operation is not is not losing money <laughs> you know, they're, they're doing quite well and that's the thing when you look at the figures from uh the merinos have been more profitable than the average prime lamb flock over the last uh, two three years but in general they've been actually neck and neck per dsc so and, and at the moment um Wool is behind the on absolute today's prices. Wool is uh, wool flock would be about thirty DC per hectare. Sorry, per DC, and uh, prime lamb operation around thirty five DC dollars. Sorry, thirty five dollars per DC gross margin. So, you know, that it's not it's not cheap stations, but it's pardon the pun, but it's certainly um, there is a difference. But before then, uh, the merinos were doing very well. Yeah. Mm. And yet still, like, so the numbers you're saying to us in, in a kind of bit of a summary here, the numbers uh, on farms stack up as to why you'd, you'd, you'd kind of, you know, look towards wool. Um, the the labour side of things and the, and the amount of effort and work involved, if you really crunch the numbers there as well, is in favour of wool. But yet yep. we, we still see since, you know, the, the 90s all the way through to now has been this drift away uh, mm. and particularly, you know, away from wool. Some of it's obviously gone into prime land, but there's been a heck of a lot as well that's just gone straight across to Andrew's field into cropping. Um, so so is it just that, you know, the younger farmer would rather sit in a in an air-conditioned, um, you know, self-driving, uh, you know, satellite-driven machine and listen to podcasts all day? Or, you know, what is, is that what it is? It's not, a, it's not an actually economic thing. It's more just about what they prefer to do. Now, I have to declare a bias here, guys. When I was in my jackaroo days, I hated machinery. I loved livestock. I love working with stock. So what I'm about to say has to be uh, taken with that uh, caveat in place. Um, I think it depends on the person, to be honest. And, I mean, if people are really keen on driving around in circles in an air-conditioned machinery, why don't they become a bus driver on a tourist track? You know, why don't they enjoy the scenery and rather than go around in circles in a paddock? You know, seriously. <laughs> if, if machinery is your thing, there might be more attractive ways of enjoying it than going around in circles in a paddock. So you, could, you could become a Zamboni driver on an ice rink. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in ter- but I guess the, the thing is, 
like I, I just wonder whether it is more we this debate has been running for years why why people are going into cropping or and and this and I, I know one person who's taken up sheep in the last couple of years yeah um in the western districts who who had gone all cropping mm. and gone back to sheep but i think largely it is going the opposite way still and mm. even even despite the changes i i guess the thing is maybe 100 percent cropping in areas where it works there is potentially you know a different social life from it in terms of you might have a little bit you don't have to look after an animal year round like we've got matt and i've got the pig farm and we have yeah. to have somebody there 60 uh, seven days a week mm. uh, to, yeah. to, to check on it because you've just got to care about the animal welfare but with the uh with with the cropping i guess to an extent and i'll be told i'm wrong but you plant it you harvest it you spray it a couple of times mm. and then you spend a lot of time obviously planning next year's harvest and planning your nuffield trip or whatnot so <laughs> I, I sort of i guess i guess it, to, to summarize what you've been saying effectively the money's there in wool and, and i've seen similar stats with with uh, benchmarking that shows yeah. that yeah. there's no there's not much volatility on sheep yeah that's, uh, that, that is a point the production risk is less yes and i and i, and I sort of think well it must be a lifestyle thing or it must be something other than money because yeah. we know we know that the money's there for it so it must be something other than money there must be a behavioral thing that makes people decide not to get into sheep or the uh, perception or the perception that yeah. it's not you know that it's not um i know you know there's there's a lot of like you said the technology and the machinery in some industries if you look at um if you go into you know your average shearing shed uh, around the place there's a lot out there that don't look like they've changed in a hundred years Do you know what i mean yeah, um, that's an issue um yeah. is that is that is it just a perception that it's not um it's not sexy it's not uh up, up to scratch it's an old traditional industry with mm. full of old traditional people that you know um oh, and, and so therefore it just doesn't I think so yeah i yeah. think that's so but uh, the reality is that you can have modern shearing sheds excellent sheep yards and excellent sheep handling gear and the cost of them in terms of capital is stuff all compared to a you know shiny iron mongery i mean you know really the cropping investment is just incredible uh, and don't get me wrong cropping's in the rock you know cropping's profitable and and fits farm systems in low rainfall areas in general sure there's some high high rainfall cropping can be profitable where the soil support it but you know, it's it's not a blanket um, profit maker because there's certainly farms that have gone broke going cropping, and I mean seriously gone broke. Mm. Um, because yeah, three frosts in a row and they're out. In terms of, I'm just wondering as well, the, are are we at risk in farming with 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 the actual skill set for animal husbandry being lost? Like it's like I'm I'm just thinking from a point of view if if you're if you're going back to the farm at 22 23 years old yep. and then it's been full cropping for 20 years you turn 45 and then you decide to get back into sheep it's not not that easy yep. without some help and yeah, that, is, that, yeah, sure. is that a risk sure i mean it's a bit like um you know cotton growers cotton in the initial stage of cotton nobody grew up in you know 
around Narrabri in, in New South Wales when they introduced crop and crop uh, cotton. So every farm that grew cotton had a consultant. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so I mean, you know, they identified they didn't have the skills and they got advice to help them. Now, similarly, um, I think there's that. Um, yeah, you know, I'm not saying that that's for going to apply to everyone, but I'm saying that's an obvious way to go, and that's an obvious way other industries go when they they uh, change change what they're doing. So, you know, farming's not the only industry that uh, would undergo change over time, and uh, other industries do too. You know, you look at um, a lot of companies, and they're different, very different beasts from what they used to be, and that requires different skill sets. I think the key thing is that people probably have this, you know, general, they don't do the figures themselves. They have this general assumption. There's this mythology, what I call agricultural mythology. And it's a very strong problem in agriculture. But, you know, to be honest, if you look at other businesses, the same sort of mythology is there and the same sort of variation in profit is there. So, you know, there's people who do their sums and do them properly and make the right decisions. And there's others who don't. And, you know, uh, the, the reality is not all farmers are going to survive through um, forever. Uh, they're going to be bought out, they're going to sell, be sold. The top 20% will continue to expand. Now, that might sound a bit uh, mercenary to some, but, I mean, that's the nature of any business. That's, that you've that's, got. that's, that's the same happens with hairdressers in the town yep. centre or, or probably 90% of cafes in the next year. Yeah, you go to, well, that's right. You go to, well, you used to go to Westfield Shopping Centre and, <laughs> I mean, every time you go there, someone's gone bust, another person's in. I mean, it's just cutthroat and that's, um, yeah, that's the nature of business. I, I, it's, it's, it is a bit different in the bush, but, I mean, if the fundamentals, though, aren't significantly different. And, um, yeah, I think the key is that people need to um, make some, you know, analyse what's good for their uh, system, if you like, their far, sorry, their farm location, environment, their management, their labour availability, their the logistics of their finances, all those things that come into it, and make some good decisions about what enterprise mix fits their farm, you know, fits their farm business the best to make a profit and is easy to manage. Kiss, keep it simple, stupid is really important. Too too many farms have too many enterprises. There's so many things going on none of them get done properly. And that's, that's an interesting point because I noticed, oh, I can't remember, uh, somebody, somebody asked about it today on, on Twitter actually, uh, asking about whether farmers are expected to know everything. But I think, it, like my view is, it, it sort of comes back to you, you do what you can do well. Yeah. And there's no point doing a half-assed job just trying to do it you ask for help from someone else, whether you've got to pay yeah. for it or whether it's a resource that's available that you can bounce ideas off of. I think it's important to, again, do the stuff you can do and, and, and outsource the stuff you can't do. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. I think you did right, Andrew. At, um, at risk, Graham, of being labelled a shit stirrer, because I don't think I'm the biggest shit stirrer on this podcast um, by any stretch, but um, I did note today, in an article I looked at today that's... Um, someone's out there calling for the AWI board to take a half, a 50% pay cut. Um, <laughs> and I was just, you know, it's, it's one of those things that's popped up a few times in our discussions. I, I've spoken about it a bit on the podcast um, a little while back when we were talking about the, the um, demise this year of the, uh, the wool price. And I'm, I'm not, um, certainly not um, trying to paint 
um, the responsibility for that fall is, is in, our, in our AWI's lap. But um, certainly, no. when um, when the prices were raging hot, they were very quick to be um, to take ownership of that. Um, and and you know, we'd been saying that part of, a good part of the reason why prices were so high is because supply was so low. Obviously, demand was also being um, was being kind of fostered by what they were doing. Um, so they had some level of, um, you know, it was fair to say that some of the um, price rise they could take some credit for, but it seems as though, and I think I made the comment a little while back, Andrew, that um, what, what's the famous quote? Um, Success has many fathers, but failure's an orphan. It seems that the wool price, you know, the wool price movement is um, no one wants to take ownership of this drop at all. It seems to be um, they've gone very quiet. And I just wonder what your what your thoughts are around that whole scenario over the last few years and how yeah. AWI have been tracking yeah. it. Could I, Andrew I, might could uh, I, have a could comment I, first. Could, I just want to add one comment because I don't know who you were referring to when you said you want the biggest shit stirrer on the podcast. <laughs> and, I, and I don't think that's a nice way to talk to our guests because uh, clearly you're not talking about me. Uh, but, but I think it, it is important to say that as much as we take the piss out of AWI for claiming those successes my view is that you can't really claim those successes because it is just a commodity market and it does what it does but at the same respect i don't think we can blame awi for the market being down the market's of down because not. the market's down so of course not but before we get before we get a phone call no that's right <laughs> telling you <laughs> I, I, I agree i agree totally right and that's part of the point that they're not responsible for the fall just as they weren't really responsible for all of the rise or you know um they should never have attached themselves to the price movement um in my view but anyway mm-hmm. they did and so, therefore, they're fair game. But anyway, Graham, I've, I've, div- I've diverted a little bit. I'd be uh, interested to hear no, what you're No, no, that, that's, all, that's all good. Um, I have to say that uh, I, they're not responsible for this price fall. That's just ridiculous. I mean, it's COVID-19. And the, the, the uh, drop-in price is similar to, to in, in similar magnitude to other fibres because they've all got retail indigestion. All these finished products for clothing is sitting in retail stores or wholesale um, wholesalers that can't move the product. So they're not going to put in any orders for any more when they've already got a stockpile that's not moving because everyone's locked up. So, you know, the the, the, the idea that that's AWI's fault is ludicrous. Um, some board members of other companies have taken a drop in pay because their employees are reduced, etc. Well, I think that's up to AWI um, board to make that decision, not others. Um, they've got corporate governance um, uh, guidelines they've got to follow. But uh, I think it was most foolish saying that wool would never be below 2,000 cents again. Uh, that wasn't as the... That, that, and, and they did pin their success to their promotion. But uh, my analysis of past promotional spends and wool prices, there's a zero correlation. I'm not the only person to have done crunched those numbers. And yet a majority of wool growers funds still go into promotion. I do not believe that is the best spot for it. It should be principally on-farm and off-farm processing research that they should be spending their bucks on to get the biggest bang for the buck. And that's been coming out of report after report. The best example is probably the CIE report that Andy Stokel did about 20 years ago. (laughs) And it hasn't changed. In in terms of, you made a good point there about about retail indigestion, which is a good term. I haven't heard that one. And 
I guess it, like it's not me worrying. It's not me trying to decide whether the uh, the the jumper I'm trying to buy is actually green or blue. No, it's, <laughs> it's COVID. COVID induced no spending. <laughs> but but and that's what I sort of I sort of think about it. Like Matt and I are working from home every day and in 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 trackies and hoodies, and so so we've we've stopped buying quite as many you know Italian wool suits this year because. Well, it's wasted on my wife and daughter. So I guess that's the thing. We've even seen like TM Lewin has gone bust in Australia. Because how many people are going to buy a suit this year? Yeah. Doubtful yeah. if you know, anyone's going to be buying a suit this year. And I guess that's the, the issue is perfectly summed up is that until the stockpiles are gone, no one's going to be buying wool to make new suits because there's plenty of suits sitting there on racks. And I think yep. then that again raises another question is if that wool's not getting sold and there's a lot of pass-ins at auction, then we have a stockpile building up of, of raw wool. And it becomes an issue not for this year, but also an issue for next year and, and the year beyond potentially. Yeah, well, I think that's an interesting point. I mean, I wouldn't like to speculate about what fashion does because I'm, I'm absolutely got no idea about fashion full stop. But um, and, and whenever I get dressed, my daughter says, no, Dad, no. So anyway, the only thing I'd say is that trying to predict what the fashion industry will do or what where fashion goes is um, difficult business. All we know that the key drivers of um, clothing retail expenditure including wool and wool price is due to economic activity what we're seeing at the moment leading indicators are strongly pointing towards a very sharp v-shaped recovery which is typical of past pandemics not all i don't think the bubonic plague was terribly good because it nearly wiped out half the world's population but that's, i think uh, i think i think back a while. That, that was a v-shaped recovery but it was over two centuries yeah, that's right. We're hoping for a bit of a fast one, but certainly the leading indicators are pointing to a quick recovery of world economic activity and a quick and a very solid recovery. That's what's going on at the moment. And one has to be from that, if supply is fairly constant, then one would have to be reasonably optimistic that you'd see a recovery in retail sales. And including wool sales and cotton sales and synthetic sales um, uh, over the next three to six months. So, um, yeah, notwithstanding the caveat there, and I'll make a very important one, notwithstanding other COVID disrupt disruptions, just like, you know, we've seen in Victoria with meat process land processing. I mean, we're still yet to go through that one, but, you know, there could be other COVID-19 uh, second waves of recoveries, but at the moment, those leading indicators are very positive, and that's very good news for not only wool, but for also our beef and, and, and particularly our land. And that's yeah. one of the stats that I've been looking at, I keep a close eye on, is the the number of COVID cases in Victoria yep. versus the number of COVID cases in Scotland, because we've got very similar size population, like 4.9 million versus 5.5 yep. or something, yep. 6. Yep. Uh, but actually, in the last couple of days, uh, we've actually seen the seven-day moving average in Scotland is now higher than Victoria. Yeah. yeah. So, so Glasgow yeah. has been picked out as a as a as a city, and they've gone into lockdown again. Right. So, the, so these. I second, thought you were going to say hotspot, Andrew, which would describe Glasgow pretty well. <laughs> that would that, that would describe Glasgow on a Saturday night. 
It's usually a hot spot preceded by the word violent hotspot. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but but it just I wasn't goes, going to go quite that far, but that was where I was leading. <laughs> but but it does point towards, you know, just this this thing is not over, and there no. is a potential for more waves. And yeah. again, let's not talk about it too much because we've all heard the COVID story. Um, but yeah. Yeah, yeah look, I, think, I, I think it's unpredictable. It's, you know, really, we don't know whether that's going to happen or not. Um, you know, there's what's amazing to me, utterly amazing as a, uh, I guess, a veterinarian and someone who's, you know, knows a bit about the product development and, and vaccines, etc. in the veterinary industry is the speed of development of vaccines for COVID-19. There are 162 separately developed vaccines in third stage testing, that is clinical trials. That's utterly amazing. Yeah, there's a real impetus to obviously get that up and running. Although I did note that the, the quickest we've ever produced a, a viable vaccine in the world was for, was it mumps and it took four mumps. years? Four years, correct. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, that's what I mean. I mean I'm just totally gobsmacked. I'm, I can't believe it. Yeah. I mean, that's from my perspective, I know the, the economics around the V-shaped recovery, but, and, and obviously your caveat, Graham, that, you know, providing there's no more, ongoing outbreaks like we've seen in Victoria coming up elsewhere around the world or elsewhere around Australia. But that's my, my concern is that the vaccine won't be as quick as what people are suggesting at like the middle yep. of next year or something like that. Um, mm. And that we will get more outbreaks um, in, unless you eradicate it. And, and even in New Zealand, we saw it was pretty much eradicated and then it's popped out of nowhere. I, th I think they still haven't identified how they got no. it there again, no. but they needed to go back into a lockdown to, to so get rid was, of it. I think they think they did find it out. They'd switched on the 5G telephone signals. <laughs> Matt, now we've heard everything. Yeah, so, but I mean, my, my view is that actually we will probably have, unless we get a vaccine, um, we will be subject to potential outbreaks all, you know, ongoing. And therefore, I, I actually think we're going to see more of a disrupted V-shape. But, you know, I don't think we're going to see a V-shape. So, so to yeah. speak, I think we're, we're going to see more of a, uh, you know, uh, I, I think it was Royal, yeah, U-shaped, but I think it was uh, not Royal College, it was Imperial College in London. When the, when the COVID virus was first breaking, they came out with their analysis saying that their thought was that unless you eradicate um, and, and are able to you know, keep it out, which, which somewhere like Australia, being an island or New Zealand, are able to potentially do that once they've got it out of the country, they can keep their borders pretty tightly um, monitored. Um, unless you eradicate, you're going to have this seesaw effect of lockdown and then reopening and then lockdown and reopening until you get a vaccine. And, and that's my concern that, um, you know, we can't really be fully uh, free and open uh, and, until, we've, until we've either got a vaccine or, or eradicated it from the whole of the country. Yeah, look, to be honest, um, my view as, a, as someone who uh, has expertise in animal disease, I won't say I'm, I'm a, an ace epidemiologist, but um, this disease, it's very infectious. It will keep going until we have herd immunity. And the flattened curve was what everyone talked about in the health departments of this nation in the first place. And that is essentially correct. Um, you, you want to reduce the instant impact of it letting, letting it rip and infect everyone so you do want to try and control infection and the way to do that is not lock up huge states it's to 
lockdown hotspots. And uh, that's what you do with, um, say, foot and mouth or something like that. You might, yeah, you might have some regulation of a further broader area, but you really lock down the hotspots and that's how you manage it. You put your resources into that. Um, so that's diverging a bit, but the thing is that um, until a vaccine comes along, we're probably all going to get exposed to it and infected at some stage. And the point is, if it's if it's a flattened curve, the evidence is that the economic activity is still strong. In fact, over the last um, six months, the evidence is strong that those countries with less um, cases of COVID per million people have got stronger economic activity. And those who have let it rip, Brazil, etc., and dire straits. And so there's a two-pronged uh, reason for flattening that curve. One, well, three. One, you're never going to get you're never going to get on top of it. Even New Zealand has still got it. Two, you're going to improve the well-being of your population by not having them all sick at once or a whole a huge number sick at once. And three, you're actually going to reduce the cost of the whole thing because you're still ticking along uh, partly. The economy is still ticking along partly, which helps people's well-being as well because they're actually not not crook and auntie isn't sick and your daughter's not sick and your mum's not sick. So, you know, that's not good for people's well-being and economic activity. I saw that. I think you only put it out on Twitter um, just the other day that, that it was a scatter plot looking at yep. um, yeah, grow, uh, was it um, the negative growth levels in economies compared to the deaths per that hundred thousand or something yeah, like that. Yeah, and it was yeah. pretty, it was a pretty clear picture there. Um, yes, it was. You know, yeah. So that was quite a good one. I thought that explained it very well, but um, the herd immunity side of things, I'd be interested to hear. I've been, um, or the reading I've done is suggests that we don't need as high a percentage of herd immunity than what you might with other diseases. Um, they're talking Correct. something like, what, a 30 or 40% immunity rather than up into the 60 or 70s? Is that... Well, that's what they initially thought, 60 or 70, but it's actually probably, you know, it could well be down as low as 10 or 20% because uh, New York New York City is probably at that point and Sweden is too. So, you know, Sweden is just dropping, like the cases are dropping like flies. You know, there's no lockdowns, no no real social distancing. So, And New York, well, we know what happened there, but they're back to normal. So, I mean, they're back to normal, but um, the, the cases are extremely low. So that, Herd immunity has probably reached a much lower proportion of the population than we'd imagined. And, I mean, if that's right, um, by the time the vaccine comes, we may be all immune, I, I doubt it. But, I mean, um, uh, you know, I, but it highlights the point that um, we've come into this disease. It's not an established disease. It's a new one. And there's a lot that we haven't known. Uh, you mentioned Imperial College there. Basically, that modelling is deeply flawed because so many of the assumptions were wrong that we know now. So that high level of herd immunity they were projecting is is probably you know definitely from the numbers that we're actually seeing is is likely to be way way out, and that's what's actually being seen in Sweden and New York. Mm. Very good. I think um, Andrew, we've nearly. We've nearly exhausted everything. We've spoken about uh, the wool price and uh, you know, enterprise mix, and we've ended up with uh, a discussion around COVID and epidemiology. And you know, we've, we've, we've we about, want to go. We, we've we talked about Mulesing. We talked about the yeah. AWI directors. Jeez, we've we've had we've had every controversial topic that'll get us in trouble. You're you're, uh, you're been in trouble for ever. You, you'll never have me on there again. But you know, ah, I, I'd like to finish with a positive thing, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I, we do we do a fair bit of farm benchmarking and have done for a long time. And the average, just to you know, put I guess put a 
put a finish on it, um, on, on my numbers. I love numbers. <laughs> um, but the long-term uh, gross margins from prime lamb and from wool have been around $30 a DSC over the time of um, you know, farm benchmarking since 1970, 71 in, in this, this, this region. You know, some of the levels that we're seeing at the moment, um, you know, wool is back to about $30 DSC at the moment, prime lamb about 35 But, you know, uh, they've been right above, like the five-year average for wool and prime lamb is about $50 a DSC. And over the last couple of years, it's been about 65 75 for wool. So it's been phenomenally good and profitable. And that's what's driving land prices and uh, good returns around here. I'm seeing very good returns with clients, you know, massive profits. And it's, you know, ha has been recorded over the last few years. It's been really good. And I guess the future... I don't think it's going to go away because the overriding future will be um, enormous demand coming out of um, developing Asia and it's just starting. It's only just starting and there's not much supply of what they want. So the price has got to be firm or, or rising. That's my view. Yep. Good point. Um, one of the things and another another point I think we can finish on and one that I asked because, Graeme, you mentioned uh, off... off uh, off the mic at the start of this, when we were just going through the, the bits and bobs of how to run the podcast, you'd mentioned you'd listened to a few podcasts of ours uh, uh, along the way there. And um, something I asked some of the guests that are on that have heard the podcast previously is um, their thoughts around the music, the starting and ending music. Um, and I was hopeful you'd also be able to share a, a positive comment about the music, uh, uh, Graham, in terms of what you uh, think. However, you know, just, just, just to balance it out, if you've got a negative viewpoint on the music, <laughs> I've got no problem with that either because we do have a, we do have a back we have backup music sitting in the background waiting to go, and we can throw this hockey music onto the cutting room floor quite easily. Oh, look, I, I think the background music, if it's elevator music, would be far better. So go for it. So that's what Liz Jackson said. Elevator music. So there's two elevator musics now. <laughs> And, and the only person that's holding up the uh, the, the flag for uh, the hokey music is our friend Clint Jasper. He apparently loves the, the music so while he still loves it, I'm not going to change it, Andrew. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll, we'll give it another two. We'll, we'll ask the next two guests on who come on. We'll ask them whether they like the music and we'll, 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 we'll judge it on a, you know, we're currently a sort of a, you're far away from a best of 15, never mind. <laughs> Best of three, so we can uh, we'll ask the next two guests and then see what happens there. But no, thanks. I think you have to keep asking, Andrew. That's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> so Graham, it was great to have you on. Like it was, I think. Oh, we'll pleasure, guys. It was. We'll really get you on again good. soon yeah. because I think you've got a depth of of knowledge yeah. in areas that we don't really cover, which is good. Uh, but no, it was great. It was fantastic. Oh, well, uh, thanks very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. And uh, um, looking forward to hearing it. Thanks, <laughs> and Graham. more podcasts so, from you guys. See you around like a result, folks. That was a very good uh, podcast, I thought. Ciao for now. Hey.